Hello everyone, it's December 21st, 2021. So as we approach the end of the year, we might as well take stock of how Starship has progressed. There have been a lot of changes, and with only days to go, I wouldn't be surprised if SpaceX got in just one more before the end of the month. So let's get going, and lift off! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 339 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben, and boy is it glad to have you say that instead of me. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was so weird to say it last week. Yeah, you did a pretty good job. Um, I still did the editing, and I was like, okay, they got it. <laughs> it was it was weird not being there, I guess, yeah. but it was no big deal. Um, you, you did yeah, just fine. So. <laughs> you've, you've edited interviews that you weren't in, but not not actual episodes. So. Yeah, yep. It's, it's kind of weird for me to be the common denominator between two yeah. shows. Like, it doesn't normally happen. <laughs> And well, and so this week uh, we don't have Dennis. Uh, he's on the road. It's just that time of year, so um, and we won't be here next week. But that's traditional. Uh, so we do take Christmas off. But otherwise, we've kept the show going. Like even though we've all had stuff to do, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I say that's pretty good. Yeah, that that's the beauty of having three people. But yeah, so De- Dennis said he might tune in during the show today. But when I, I talked to him last night, and he was uh, on the near side of Oklahoma City. And he found a really good hotel. He was thinking about going to the far side of Oklahoma City. Uh, but he's like, nope, the, this hotel doesn't have any cockroaches and is really cheap. So he stayed there. The holy grail of hotels on the road. Right, right, exactly. One thing that I guess you said that he wanted to talk about, but he's not here, uh, is Parker Solar Probe. He didn't even tell me that he wanted to talk about this, but I saw it in the news and I knew he would want to talk about it. Yeah. So Parker Solar Probe has touched the sun. Yeah. The corona specifically, right? Which is the sun. Yeah, yeah, the the solar atmosphere. And uh, so so PSP has been dipping lower and lower towards the sun. And the thing, one of the big things they were looking for, so, so sort of like, uh, the Voyagers were looking for the heliopause, right? Where the, the, the sun's influence breaks down because in most of the solar system, you've got the solar wind that's rushing out. Uh, and then there's a place where the solar wind, uh, sort of goes from a laminar flow to a more chaotic, kind of just like a bubbling, uh, non-directional kind of, of interstellar medium. And like, that's, that's an interesting boundary. Well, there's a, a very similar boundary, uh, way down close to the sun and it's the top of the solar atmosphere. And, uh, Dennis would be able to say this with more certainty than I can, but like, I don't think that there's, uh, like a, a solid definition of where it is, but the, the best definition that we have is called the Alphan critical surface or the Alphan sphere. And that is, uh, this boundary where the sun's gravity and magnetism, its magnetic pole, uh, are not strong enough to contain the, the solar particles, like the, the, the bits of, uh, of gas and plasma that are, are bouncing around. Assuming there is any gas, it might all be plasma because it's, you know, it's hot. But yeah, it's, it's sort of this like a, like a sphere of influence where particles below this critical boundary, this, this critical surface uh, are, uh, more or less contained to the sun and, you know, they'll kind of fall back down and above it, they, all turn into solar wind and, and fly away. So it's like the boundary that we've sort of defined by uh, the boundary that we've defined to be the edge of the solar atmosphere. And, and Parker Solar Probe dipped below that for the first time. And what's really neat is that we didn't know where it was, just like we didn't know where the heliopause was. The estimates before was something between 10 and 20 solar radii. And, um, I'm assuming it fluctuates and is lumpy on different sides of the sun at different times. Um, but PSP encountered it at 18.8 solar radii, uh, which is really cool. Like, hey, we now have, you know, data to work with.
All right, so uh, in the news, uh, super heavy. Um, I guess this is a good point to get a bit of an update on exactly what's going on. So there's always so much happening that I kind of I try to wait for a good punctuation point, you know, yeah, yep. where we can dive back in. But that hasn't really quite been happening. It, there's just been a whole lot of little changes. So I guess now's a good time to take stock of what has happened over the past. Yeah, and you know, I don't even think that this is going to be super exhaustive compared to the last time that we talked about it. Because, like you said, it's just like a, a gazillion little tiny things, and so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna do our best. We'll we'll see how this actually, how many gaps we actually fill here. But the the impetus here was this video that Elon tweeted, which is really great. It's I, I believe it's Booster Three, no matter what booster it is. <laughs> it's yeah. the business end of it, and you know it's got these nine uh, Raptor engines in the middle, and then this ring. Uh, of raptors on the outside and it the the inner ones are the uh, can gimbal and uh so this video is just them you know doing a couple loop-de-loops and and you know they're basically doing like full yaw rotate around to full pitch and then back home um so it's like rotating around the outside of its of its its movement what what i really wish we would have had was um a demonstration of a roll maneuver, like a, like the roll movement requirement output, whatever, where we got to see them like, like rotate, I guess is the best way, like where the ones on the top went left, the ones on the bottom went right, you know, and, and put, did this, this roll movement, but, uh, we didn't get to see that. Hopefully, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon we'll see that. So according to a tweet, right, we have currently we have Raptor one. Uh, and those produce 185 tons of thrust, and those are metric tons of thrust, I'm assuming, I'm pretty yes. sure. But Raptor 2 will produce 230 plus. Yeah. Uh, that's a big step up. Now, do you think, I mean, I guess they've already, well, I don't know exactly where they are. Um, How realistic does that sound? Because, I mean, like, Raptors are already, they push the threshold of what's possible for frankly like rocket engines in general yeah. and we've heard a lot about you know how they're trying to increase internal chamber pressure blah 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 and it seems like they've been having some problems or or at least they did like a year ago or so and have oh, they fixed those or well well there are still definitely problems it's they're mm -hmm. probably different problems but you remember like over thanksgiving elon was like hey anybody who can come into work this weekend that would be great <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the whole, uh, we're going to go bankrupt if we can't do this thing. Um, and so like, it seems unlikely that one, one extra weekend worth of work would have fixed all of those problems, but at least it feels like they're getting closer to, to fixing their, you know, production slash reliability issues, G getting close enough that they're, that Elon's willing to start talking about the next version. But yeah, we were talking about this in discord, uh, 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 an hour or two ago while we were working on the show and just like, yeah, it's, you know, it's not everything is roses, but it, it does sound like they're, you know, making progress. I had kind of forgotten that it was specifically, you know, the whole how he called everyone to work. That was because of the problems with uh, producing the Raptor 2 engines, right? So had they been the Raptor 1s, do you think that this wouldn't be as big of a deal because I thought it just had to do more with, you know, the problems of production of either one of them, but really we're talking about Raptor two and that's the I, real, you know, I don't know if, if that distinction has been made, like, I, I don't know how yeah. different they are and whether there's a particular process that goes into, to Raptor two that, uh, causes an issue that was not present in Raptor one. I, I think it's just the problem of like building engines as fast as they want to. Like I, n no one else has really produced engines, uh, this, this size of engine this fast. And, and like I'm talking, you know, very general terms with a lot of caveats. Like obviously like weapon production, you know, we, we've built a gazillion weapons all at once, but they tend to be, you know, solid rockets and that kind of thing. Um, they're, they're certainly not this class of engine. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the sheer quantity that they're trying to crank out is, is really staggering. And, and I, I think it's pretty fair to say that, you know, this, this scale of production is, is unusual in a lot of ways. So yeah, I mean, it, it's probably, it's probably, that it's definitely at least related to that, whether or not it's 
you know, something specific to this engine versus a different engine. Well, it seems that they're in the production phase, right? Or at least they're trying to get there. So they have at least completed a working Raptor 2. They, yeah, you, know, you they mean as opposed much. to the design phase. Right. Yeah. yeah. They're done with the design phase. That, that seems reasonable to guess. It's still a guess, but it seems reasonable. Yeah. If not, Musk seems pretty confident because he says, you know, production will begin soon and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there, you know, there's all these details on exactly what's going to happen from this point forward and to think that they don't even have a working prototype or something that's kind of hard to believe well and and like so the the thing is i i'm not sure i was trying to figure out if they've actually um stand tested uh raptor 2 um there was a, a big stand test uh at mcgregor this week um i th- i think is what i was seeing um and uh elon did say that they have finished the last Raptor 1 test at McGregor, and they're not going to be doing any more Raptor 1 tests. Um, they're only going to be doing Raptor right. 2 from now on. So the question is, did they do Raptor 2 tests already, or you know, are we just sitting at that boundary now? Not sure. So on the Raptor 1 engines we saw, was that a 15-degree gimbal? Because you have here the notes that they that that's... You know how much they can gimbal is fifteen degrees. So I, I know, that- yeah, I know that Raptor two can do a fifteen de- degree gimbal, but I believe Raptor one also did this. I'm not sure. Like it's so hard to find these details, uh, partially because people disagree, and partially because we just we just don't know. You know, uh, we mm-hmm. don't have access to. SpaceX's internal Wikipedia or whatever their, their documentation. But yeah, Elon tweeted specifically about Raptor 2 having a 15 degree gimbal, which is crazy when you consider that like SSME, the space shuttle main engine, uh, the, the RS 25 is, is like usually thought of as the engine with, you know, the widest gimbal. And I'm sure that there is another engine that you know, has slightly, slightly wider gimbal angle, but, but just, you know, for something that people are familiar with that can, can do this insane gimbling range, which shuttle needed because of, you know, the, the crazy off center thrust, uh, that happened. Um, SSME only did like 12 and a half degrees, something, something in that range, you know, 11 and a half. And, and so going up to 15 degrees, is just as crazy as it sounds, but you need it to be able to do the, the backflip maneuver, right? Like, like to be able to, to pitch over that fast, you really got to put, put some, uh, put some sauce in there, put, put a little pepper in there. You really got to kick these things over far. For the booster, are there not cold gas thrusters involved in that, which would help? Well, so there, there are on, on, Starship as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the the reason that Starship needs it is because it's doing the the flip so close to you know smashing into the ground territory. Mm-hmm. Um, the booster will you know come back engines first, just like uh, just like Falcon Nine, unless a dramatic changes happen that I'm not aware of. Uh, so so booster doesn't need it but starship does and so they want you know spacex being spacex um we're going kind of like back to maybe closer to the original concept of starship which is that they want to do a total of 33 engines on the booster what was the original number i think it was that right it was like 30 something so um like that that's actually a, a really great little segue so um the current you know quote unquote current version the most up to date current version is is B4, uh, booster, uh, super heavy booster serial number four. And B4 has 29 engines total. And it, it sounds like, uh, SpaceX was really itching to get some more engines on the final version, which isn't, isn't terribly surprising. But there has been a little bit of an update, um, that Elon announced or confirmed, depending on what rumors have been flying and what rumors I may or may not have remembered that I read at all. Um, but yeah, so right now, um, the, the orbital test flight is going to be flown with booster four and starship serial number 20. Elon claims that this combination is totally coincidental. Uh, but we all know better. Um, and there's another numerical um, coincidence that's coming up that we'll talk about. But the next the next version of the booster 
I'm not sure if this is going to be booster five or just the next booster that is is constructed. We'll have 33 engines up from 29. So that'll be 13 engines steering in the middle and 20 fixed in the ring on the outside. And that booster will be upgraded to, to Raptor 2s. B4 currently has Raptor 1s installed on it. So, okay, so the question I have, right? So, um, sorry if it, like, you know, like if I haven't been keeping up. So he wants to upgrade to 33 total engines. How does that happen? Are we talking about, like, we're not talking about a larger diameter here are we no so you just cram more in there packing them closer yeah i mean there's a pretty a pretty large gap between the inner and outer ones uh on this on this vehicle okay so they're going to be so the configuration is you would have the inner the you would have the gimbling engines then you would have a second ring and then a third one I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, 20 fixed engines matches the current setup. So instead of right. nine in the middle, you just have 13 in the middle. So that'd probably be three in the center and then a ring of 10 around it. Okay, I see. All right. And that's still enough room pretty much to get your gimbling on. <laughs> um, no, I, th I think that's plenty of room because there's there's that big old gap right now between the inner and yeah. outer. So like, if you think about taking that outer ring of eight and just putting two more in there, like it makes a, the diameter of the circle bigger, but not mm -hmm. by much. But yeah, so that that's Booster. The next version of Starship, or maybe an upcoming Starship is a, is a better way to put this, is going to have nine total engines. So that's three C-level engines that can do steering, and then six uh, engines that are six vacuum engines that are fixed. Um, the last we saw, it was a 3-3 three, three split, and so now they've uh, they've bumped it up to six vacuum engines, and uh, Starship will also get an increased propellant load. They're they're going to stretch the tanks. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure if stretching the tanks means that the outer uh, the outer profile of Starship is going to have to get bigger or not. But uh, I was reading on the SpaceX subreddit, somebody was saying that there was a suggestion that they were going to add, they were going to stretch Starship anyway for uh, low-density uh, payloads, um, you know, read crew payloads. So that, that sounds like it might have happened anyway. Um, I was talking with Discord before the show, and we were looking at uh, at some diagrams of, of the Starship vehicle and trying to figure out whether they could stretch the tanks uh, internally or if they really needed to, to change the outer profile. Uh, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, mostly because we don't have really solid diagrams from SpaceX and, you know, they started building the things indoors. <laughs> so we don't get as good, a uh, good, uh, uh, spy photos, uh, from them. But the, the really cool thing about increasing the number of engines on Starship, right? Cause, cause all, what you're doing is you're increasing the mass of the vehicle. Uh, in exchange for increased thrust and just adding more engine mass would be cutting into your payload mass, but increasing the engine mass and the propellant mass, um, allows you to do some fun things. So, uh, there'll be a link to a comment, uh, on the SpaceX subreddit where a user is, is taking some guesses, um, that, that sound fairly reasonable to me. So the idea is if you add two more rings to Starship, right? Because it's constructed of rings stacked on top of each other. If you add two more rings, that gets you about 200 tons of propellant on top of it, uh, 200 additional tons of propellant which leads to a roughly 40% payload increase to low Earth orbit. And that 40% uh, payload increase um, beyond LEO gets you the ability to go to the lunar surface and back to LEO on a single tank. So that's going up to LEO, refilling all the way up to full, going to the moon, landing, taking off, coming back to low Earth orbit. And, and being able to do that on a single tank with a payload, not a huge payload, but at least a non-zero payload. Um, and this would also be the, the moon configuration with no heat shield and no fins, which is interesting because it means that you're not going to be able to do super aggressive um, braking in the atmosphere when you come back. But, 
it's still something more relevant to uh, today would be the number of refueling flights you would need to fill up uh, a starship going to the moon or to Mars, right? If you do these stretched starship vehicles and use them as your tankers, you can carry more fuel to orbit each time. And uh, the same user guesses that we're looking at a 17% reduction in the number of refueling flights. And when we're looking at, you know, on the order of 20 or 30 refueling flights, right? What is it? 20 was a closer guess. The, um, the Artemis bid included 16 fueling flights. And so Elon tweeted, 16 flights is extremely unlikely. Starship payload to orbit is about 150 tons. So a max of eight refueling flights to fill the um, 1,200-ton tanks of the lunar starship. Um, and so without the, uh, the, the flaps and the heat shield, so the, the lunar configuration, uh, starship is, is really light. And so you might be able to fly the lunar starship half full of fuel, which would be four tanker flights. Um, so doing uh, a 17% reduction, I'm assuming is included in this 1200 ton tank, right? I think, I think going from a thousand to 1200 is this, this stretched increase. Um, I, I could be wrong. Maybe the chat knows better. Hard to say. I mean, these. So this is all from a Reddit post, which looks like, a, uh, according to the poster, this that that this was a little back of the envelope calculation here. Um, and, and I have to say, it's quite surprising. Like a forty percent payload increase. First of all, is is substantial. So that really, um, I that just wasn't intuitive to me. I wouldn't have thought it would be that much. So that's a lot. Yeah, and like I included these numbers in the show notes not because I think that they are right, but because I think they're helpful just to get some ideas of the the rain, you know, the the scale of the numbers that we're talking about. They could they could be off by quite a bit. Um but you know we're we're probably looking at uh the correct order of magnitude you know like mm-hmm. we're we're probably in the in the right neighborhood even if these uh wind up being totally bad calculations um we're we're still talking about a, a lot of a lot of oomph like being able to go to the moon with eight tanker flights is really cool the one thing that stands out to me is that like if you have to add rings because as you said that's how it's built right it's just built in these sections that's not too hard to do so that seems like a right, good exactly. way to go i mean that's yeah. that doesn't require like any real retooling you know because it's height is never a problem it's much more so the diameter <laughs> that you know seems to be what it comes down to when you're making rockets um so i and, yeah. and i don't see why spacex wouldn't do that so i think it's a pretty good bet i would say the other option you were saying is that if they could increase the tank size without increasing uh the size of the starship itself but i don't know why it would be that big in the first place if they had extra room you know like is there a reason why they would have just some spare space hanging around well yeah because you've got you've got room for your payload oh so you're talking about taking up the payload space with the tanks well i mean that's that's definitely you know a possibility like there there is room there well you know, if you're going to fly a tanker, you might as well fill up the entire interior if that's possible, if that's supportable by your engines. And uh, Elon had tweeted that that Starship was really begging for these extra three engines. And I think that might be the perspective that he's coming from. Adding on three extra engines may allow you to may be the key to making one of these things, you know, a, a tanker like per se, you know, like a like not just something without a payload but like actually yeah. so we'll 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 see i think these are all great questions to ask uh because they haven't been answered yet but but we'll see so uh godspeed uh flight 420 real quick while we're while we're talking about funny numbers um the other numerical coincidence when elon said that uh starship was just begging for three extra engines <laughs> Adding those three extra engines gets the entire stack up to 42 engines, which is wonderful. Um, and I, I was joking in the chat, like, what, what if they were, you know, sitting at 
uh, 41 total engines. And I'm like, well, 41 is optimal for this configuration, but we could add just one more and it wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> and it yeah. sounds like, you know, they're actually sitting at 39 and they're like, well, three more would work. Like, I, I don't think that this is anything but a coincidence, but it's, it's really nice. It's a good coincidence. All right. This week, let's do two short and sweets. And Ben, what's the first one? All right. JWST delayed. Uh, a communication issue between the observatory and the launch vehicle, unquote, has cropped up and JWST will not be launching Wednesday as expected. Uh, as of this recording, the best information is that it'll launch no earlier than December 24th, which is a two-day delay at minimum. A more specific launch target should be announced before this episode is published, but it's not out right now. The way data frames from the spacecraft are being dropped implicates a single 100-meter data cable that runs from the spacecraft down to, quote, somebody's computer. Uh, quote continues, uh, the way to think about it is a ground support equipment equipment thing, uh, Zuberkin told Spaceflight Now this week. Uh, he's thinking that fixing the issue should be pretty easy once they've confirmed that the problem is indeed isolated to this cable. Pretty much any other launch would bet on the issue fixing itself once integration was complete. Uh, but of course, nothing but the best for James Webb. Next up, uh, Stoke Space receives funding. Seattle-based rocket startup Stoke Space has raised $65 million in a Series A funding round for a fully reusable launch vehicle. The plan is to begin development in and testing on the second stage first with a test scheduled for later next year. No details have been disclosed about the upcoming rocket except that it won't use ceramic tiles for thermal protection as they are too brittle for a vehicle intended for rapid reuse. It was also revealed that the vehicle features an engine that is quote very different from conventional engines don't know what that means, that will allow it to operate more efficiently at low altitudes and in a vacuum. So maybe that's a, like an aerospike maybe? I don't know, but I'm very interested and I've never heard of this company, but it's it's got my attention. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction, Burnt, and looks like we have a correction uh, via email from John P. Yeah, thanks, John, for writing in. And this is one of those corrections where I start reading it and I go, they don't know what they're talking about. And then I read the rest of the correction. I'm like, oh, crap, it sounds like they know what they're talking about. And then mm -hmm. I go and research and I'm like, oh, yeah, I I learned something. Um, not like It's not disappointment. It's like, hey, I, I had this wrong and now I don't. So, um, John said that in last episode, in the, in the last episode 338, um, we said that the VA capsule, uh, was a, we, I said, <laughs> I said that the VA capsule was a biconic reentry vehicle. I thought for some reason I had this totally wrong in my head. I thought that bicon, the biconic shape was like the Apollo shape, right? Where you have a cone on the top and then a cone facing the opposite direction on the bottom. Um, but actually, um, Apollo doesn't have a cone on the bottom. I knew it wasn't a cone, but I thought it was like modeled on a cone or something like that. Um, Apollo actually is a spherical section, mm -hmm. um, reentry vehicle. And so like there, there have been full on spherical reentry vehicles, right? Wasn't Keystone no, I guess Keystone was a sphere with a, th a spherical section with a, th a frustrum. Colin in the chat has exactly what I was thinking. Vostok might not have been a perfect sphere, but it was very close to it. And for Vostok, you still get like lifting body characteristics because the center of mass was, was well off center. So one side is always presented to the atmosphere. Uh, but like that's a really good example. So if you were to take, uh, Vostok and chop it in half and instead put a cone shape on top, you get a spherical section type reentry vehicle. And so, um, Apollo was a spherical section with a converging afterbody. 
or, or conical converging afterbody, not biconic. Biconic is actually a really, really weird shape if you look it up. It, it doesn't refer to two cones pointed in opposite directions, uh, but rather two cones pointed in the same direction. So it's describing the afterbody having like a, a cone shape in general, but like a, a a joint in the middle, right? Like a like a, a ring around the middle where the angle changes. So so yeah, TKS uh, VATKS or uh, VA in in particular, um, you. I, the reason I include both a is because John John did in their email, but also a lot of people uh, talk about them as as the same thing. But when we're talking about VA itself, when it has the service module on top, it, it does form this biconic shape, um, mm-hmm. but uh, but it ends up ejecting them. So John continues to say uh, the TKS VA spacecraft is a biconic shape, topped with a cone, but once it ejects a service module slash LES system, it has a single truncated cone shape known as a frustrum right uh the this is the same shape as a dragon or the starliner capsule uh so va is a frustrum shaped re-entry vehicle not a biconic one and then uh john was kind enough to list some theoretical but not never constructed or never flown at least re-entry vehicles the uh the people PKK Clipper and the Blue Origin commercial crew vehicle uh, both have uh, uh, a biconic profile. So thank you. Yeah, I totally had this. I had this one backwards in a very literal sense. So thank you, John, for uh, for the correction. Ah, Colin has another good example. The uh, Martian reentry backshells tend to be biconic. If you look at um, MES, and I believe even perseverance it's it's back show oh, oh yeah i guess it would be because uh mes but yeah colin says uh yeah it's actually triconic chubby gave us a nice photo where you get angles reducing and then increasing uh in these in these three cones so yeah there you go everything in the end approximates a sphere like the physicists are right <laughs> uh cats are just spheres and vacuums you know yep <laughs> All right. There you go. That's that's your correction burn for this week. Thanks again, John. And uh, I guess with that, we can move on to this week in spaceflight history. Normally, or I guess it was planned that we, we would have Dennis do this, but he's on the road, so he can't do it. So I'm taking over. Um, hopefully, I'll do this particular topic justice. I had to kind of cram for it. Um, <laughs> but we have um, we have some winners, so it was a good clue. Uh, the winners are Deskin Miller, Peter McMally, Ben Hallard, and Chepo Turkosi. Uh, oh, and the Greek, um, yep. as always. All got bonus and, points. Yeah, and they all got bonus points. So they all got the clue exactly right. And the clue was some Vikings and their kitty cat. The event is uh, on the 24th of December, 1979. And that was the first launch of uh, the Arian 1. So the first of the Arian launch family. First of the first. So I guess we should, we should just start off with how this came to be. And I know I talked about the formation of ESA before. So this kind of has to do with that. So it was shortly after the formation of ESA that they kind of wanted their own launch vehicle because they didn't have that. But prior to the formation of ESA, France had been lobbying for the Europa 3B, which was a launch vehicle that they had developed, but that was deemed to be too costly. So they kind of scaled that back and they came up with a new design called the L3B, which is a pretty bad name. I don't know why they picked that one, but uh, it does eventually change. In order to get this through, French President uh, Georges Pompidou, great name, uh, he convinced the uh, German Chancellor Willy Brandt, which is also a great name, to support the project. I can't imagine a German named Willy, but I guess that's not too right. uncommon. I, I suppose it's short for Wilhelm. But, um, <laughs> so, yeah, so these two were, you know, like obviously the two most important players in ESA, but there were a total of 11 nations that were actually part of, you know, this organization, which I had covered, I don't know, like 20 episodes back. If you go and listen yeah. to that, you'll it was a good hear about one. who the, yeah, who the original 11 members were. And now there's 20 something of them. So it, it has grown since then. So they kind of spearheaded the project. You have like Germany and France, but there was a lot of other different organizations involved. And I'm going to name some of them, some which might be familiar, some which might not. So we have, first of all, we have British Aerospace. Um, so I guess we know who that is, but that seems like a vague term. I don't know if that's an actual company. Yeah. British Aerospace. Okay. It yeah. sounds like one to my ear when I hear it, but then I'm like, well, that's kind of a generic term. So they just picked yeah. kind of one of those names. Today they're known as BAE, I believe. Okay. See that I know. Yeah. Okay. Um, then we have Volvo. So we all know who that is. Uh, we have Ferrari, another car manufacturer, and they provided the guidance system. 
which kind of uh, is kind of surprising. Um, we have Matra, which is a French electronics firm. We have Dornier Flugzeugwerke, which is a German <laughs> aircraft so manufacturer. Yeah, I love Flug, right? That's that's flight. Flight, yeah. Yeah, so like everything with the word Flug in it is good, but Flugzeugwerke is so good. Flugzeug. I don't know what the Zoig part means. Flugzeug. Verka, I think, just means work. Flugzeug so it's like flight. Verka. It's like yeah. flight. Like flight works. Flugzeug. Yeah. Verka. So it's so good, man. German is such a good language. It's got it's got all the bounce of Swedish, but it feels. Oh, Chubby says Zug. How how is the EU pronounced? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Zoig. Oh yeah, T. Yeah, Zoig. Yeah, Chubby says uh, it means thing. So flight thing works. Flight like, thing works. It's how like, can you not okay. love German? <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So uh, the next company we have uh, Marconi. They provided the central digital computer, uh, and then we have Air Liquid, which is a French industrial gas provider, and they built the third stage engines. And so those are some of the companies involved. So a very European rocket. This is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you just find all the captains of. You know, like European right. industry, and you bring yeah. them all together and say, build yep. a rocket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so the name, as I said, was changed. So this was initially called the L3B. I'm not sure where that comes from, uh, L3, I guess, because this was like their third yeah, launch iteration of the Europa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was somewhat based on the Europa 3B, so maybe that has something to do with you right. know, the 3B. So launcher 3B. Um, but they changed that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna insist that you read the line that you typed because it's very good. Oh, the name was changed to Arian due to lackluster appeal of L3B. Yeah, <laughs> yeah That was, hey, yeah. Hey guys, this name is no good. Can we, can we get a better one? It just wasn't grabbing public attention. So they thought, well, we should change it to something much better sounding. And yeah, I think that that's much better. I like, like an actual name is much better than a number or a letter. A number and a letter. Yeah. So uh, the Arian 1, what does that vehicle look like? So just a few specs. Uh, it is 4,850 kilograms to LEO, or that's how much it can take, rather, or 1,850 kilograms to a GTO. Um, and really, this vehicle was designed specifically to get things to a, a geostationary transfer orbit. Um, that was kind of their goal. But of course, I guess like if you can do that, you can put something into LEO tube. So that's the payload capacity to LEO. The height was 50 meters and a mass of 207,200 kilograms. So a decent sized vehicle, not huge, but not super small either. The first stage. So yeah, let's talk about the engine. So this is where the clue kind of comes in. Uh, the Vikings, this has two stages with Viking engines. So the first stage has four Viking two engines, and these are nitrogen, tetroxide, and UDMH engines. Yeah, they use hypergoals. And what's interesting is that they actually pressurized the tank by combusting some of that, and they used it along with water. And I couldn't figure out if that meant that you can combust it with water. I don't know how, if that's possible with UDMH. Um, I don't know enough about hypergolics, or if they just kind of like added that in there to provide some steam. Yeah, just just for like mass, you mean? Yeah, um, yeah. just to you know build up the pressure. I wasn't sure if this is combusted in the turbo pump and then put into the tanks because there is some heat involved. But I don't know if it's the kind of heat that you would get out of a turbo pump, or like, or if there was a separate mechanism that combusted the propellant and then fed that into the tanks for you know pressurization. But either way, there was you know some heat involved in that, and so they had to use steel tanks. Now the second stage is very similar, but this had two Viking four engines. Um, so these are. Slightly different engines, but still pretty much the same. They use the same propellant, but they had to use aluminum tanks because uh, this was lighter. So they wanted to increase performance. So, you know, they just wanted the lighter tanks, but that meant that they couldn't use uh, the propellant gas uh, to pressurize the tank because that would be too hot. And perhaps that might react with the tanks. I don't think that it would, but uh, too much heat for the aluminum tanks, I guess. Um, and I, so yeah. I don't know what kind of temperatures we're talking about, but apparently it's enough to, you know, interact well, I, badly with aluminum. I have some answers for you. Okay. This is coming straight from Wikipedia. An unusual feature of the Viking engines is their water tank and water pump used to cool the exhaust gases of the gas generator. The hot exhaust of the gas generator is cooled by water injection down to 620 degrees Celsius Mm. before being used to drive the three coaxial pumps for water, fuel, and oxidizer, as well as to pressurize the tanks. The water was also used as a hydraulic fluid to actuate the valves. Yeah, so it is still pretty damn hot. (laughs) Yeah, like that, I did not know that Viking was so crazy. Uh, that's very cool. And what's interesting is, you know, they had said in the article that it does not interact badly with the propellant. So you have Mm -hmm. 600 and something degrees Celsius 
gas being fed into the tanks and you have no problems there. That just goes to show how stable, I guess, these monopropellants can be. Yeah. And the, the article you're talking about, I don't remember if you mentioned it, but um, Dennis uh, did give us two really good links and they'll both be in the show notes. Um, one is to a paper called Propulsion Systems for the Ariane 1 to Ariane 4, a continuous evolution. Um, and this was presented at the 35th Joint Propulsion Conference and Exhibit. Uh, but it is a, it is a really, really good paper. And then there's another, another article, both from SciHub-SE. Is that Swedish? I'm not sure. You can tell, by the way, that these articles were both, I guess, translated by somebody who didn't speak English as a first language because it's a strange, like, there's, it's not the best English, but I mean, you can still get the point. It, so, so first off, SciHub is actually Russian. Right now it's, oh, Russian. um, okay. on a Swedish server. Breaking the flow completely here. SciHub is amazing. Um, it is like a pirate bay for science. So there are all of these paywalled uh, articles that you don't have access to unless you work for um, an institution that pays for access. And the thing is that like no scientist wants their work to be paywalled. Like that's the point of science. Mm -hmm. And so SciHub um, has collected all of these um, articles and posted them free. And like, they've also done the great service of a better, um, search mechanism. Like I've done a, a pretty decent amount of work, uh, working with article database, uh, search mechanisms. And I, I can tell you they absolutely are horrible. Like I, I have, I have written code to try and figure out what the heck the results I'm getting back are supposed to mean. Uh, yeah. So SciHub brings it down. You can, you can use so many different search terms and still find what you're looking for. Um, I don't know if it's good for like systematic searches, um, because it's, it's more general, but it, it's smarter. So for the people who need to use it, it really works well. So both of these articles are linked through SciHub. And my assumption, uh, regarding the language, my assumption is that these uh, are not written by um, uh, English as a first language uh, authors, uh, but I don't believe that they will have been translated. My assumption is that um, these are written in like an international English standard. And so they it, it's clear English, but it's not exactly the same grammar that Americans use, mm, which is okay. which is fine. So I don't know where I left off. Um, but yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't pressurize the, um, aluminum tanks with this hot gas. So they had to use helium instead. So they had to put, you know, helium tanks on there and do it that way. And, uh, so the third stage is an HM7B. That is a cryogenic stage. And that is actually still in use today. Um, but that will be replaced by the Vinci engine on, uh, the Ariane 6. So yeah, that is a Hydrolox engine. Pretty efficient, but uh, yeah, it's coming to an end, I guess, pretty soon. Let's move on to the fourth stage. Then that is the uh, the solid rocket motor. Um, that one's no longer in production. Um, it's called the Mage One, just to give the satellite that little extra bit of push to get it into orbit. Um, and the satellite itself was not very big. I guess we'll get to that in just a second, but I want to talk about the launch date. So the initial launch date was actually December 15th of 1979, but uh, that was aborted due to a technical issue. Now, the initial technical issue, I'm not sure what that was, but they thought that they could reset, so they did, and they tried to launch again within just a number of hours. But then uh, that launch was aborted again at T plus three seconds. So uh, they had already um, ignited the engines, but they had not released yet. There was an erroneous, I guess, a sensor that was faulty that had indicated that there was a pressure issue with the engine, but that ended up not being the case. But at that point, of course, they had to reset for more than just a few hours. So they reset to December 24th, and that is the actual date. And the payload was the CAT-1. And this is uh, this again goes back to the clue. So you have some Vikings, which were the engines, and their CAT, which was the payload, the CAT-1. And this was also called the Obelix. I don't know why they named it that, but that, I believe, is another reference to the Asterix mm -hmm. comic. That's another one it of the is. characters. Yeah. So you have Asterix, Versagetorix, and you have Obelix. I think those are like, I guess, three of the characters, I believe. Um, still having not read it. And I think Obelix was a cat. Okay. Well, that makes sense yeah. then. That's, that's why. All right. Obelix was a cat. So real quick, if I could, t if you don't mind me button in, the, mm -hmm. the reliability of the Viking engine is kind of fun. 
for uh, between Ariane 1 and Ariane 4, they have flown uh, 958 Viking engines, and only two of them ever uh, led to a failure. So you talked about something that we thought might you know, be an issue, but mm-hmm. ended up not being one. Um, the first uh, failure was uh, uh, combustion chamber instability, which is like big, scary ball of yarn. Mm-hmm. Um, the, <laughs> like we, we, we're not going to get into it, but the second one, uh, was actually kind of fun in, you know, a nobody died sort of way. Um, somebody accidentally left a rag in the water coolant pipe. And oh, yeah, so the vehicle that. lost thrust, uh, and, and broke up, uh, due to off center thrust, uh, causing a tumble. And that, that was in, uh, 1990. Yeah, I'm, I remember you had covered that right in uh, This Week in Space Flight History, I believe. Mm-hmm, I it was believe either so. you or Dennis, yeah. 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 Well, when, when we, when we talked about it, we, we, I don't think we really came to a good understanding of why the water was there. Um, which is really interesting that, mm-hmm. that, you know, these things all come around and we finally, uh, finally figure things out. Uh, okay. So sorry. We got it. We got to go to the chat. Um, Chubby says, no, uh, Obelisk was a big dude carrying a rock around on his back. Okay. Oh, that's you. Obelix. Okay. Okay. Obelix. And then I do uh, recognize the character. Yeah. And then Colin, uh, is channeling my inner monologue, uh, w- referring to the, uh, the rag in the pipe. Uh, and, uh, Colin says in, in Adam Savage's voice, ah, that's your problem right there. (laughs) (laughs) That's your problem right there. Back to the cat one. The cat one was built by Aeritalia. Um, and this was the first European satellite that was launched on a European rocket. Uh, very first one. Very cool. But it only lasted eight orbits, but that's fine. Uh, the actual point of the satellite was uh, to collect the data during launch on the vehicle itself. So this was not really a satellite intended to do anything in orbit, but really just to demonstrate that, that you could put something into orbit, plus collect all the data that you need to on the vehicle. So this includes um, the vehicle's performance as far as noise and stress, acceleration, temperature. So I, I guess all the things that normally you would still be collecting, but you would need more hardware to do that and therefore more mass. So they thought, well, why not just make that the satellite itself? You know, um, that seems to be, I guess, uh, the rationale behind that. And I guess they got all the information they needed. Uh, it was a total success. So, yeah, that's about it, really. So that's a quick This Week in Space Flight History about the Ariane 1, the very first of the Ariane launch family. And um, and I guess also just good luck to the one coming up on the 24th of this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, fingers crossed. So normally I'd be asking this question to Dennis, but he's not here. So I'll go ahead and ask you. Uh, <laughs> next week is uh, the 4th of January through the 10th of January. So this is actually two weeks in the future. We're not doing next week's show. So do you have a clue for the 4th to the 10th of January for us. I do. And next week it will be, I'm sorry, it will be in two weeks, obviously. <laughs> so this, so this, this clue is for two weeks in 1973 and the clue is smash the scram button. Great. Uh, if you have a guess as to what that clue could be referencing, shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag this week SF. If you use the hashtag next week SF, that would be very funny, but I will not <laughs> see it. Uh, in all likelihood, uh, that, that will not be included, but, uh, it would be a great joke. Uh, but yeah, use the hashtag this week SF and good luck, everybody. Good luck. Okay. So moving on to upcoming space flight events, we got a bunch. So a very active, uh, week coming up, yeah. um, right before Christmas. All right. So what's the first one? First up, this is going to be on, uh, on the 22nd. So Wednesday, it's going to be really early. So if you are listening to this, you know, like 12 hours after we've put it out, it's too late. Um, mm-hmm. but this is going to be, um, CRS 24, uh, rendezvousing and docking with station. So of course this is, uh, a, uh, a cargo dragon. And again, that is, uh, December 22nd. The coverage begins on NASA TV at 3 a.m. Eastern time. The docking uh, is scheduled to occur at 4.30 a.m. Eastern time. Then after that, on December 22nd, is the launch of an H-2A in the 204 configuration, um, and that is launching um, Inmarsat 6F1. So this is another Inmarsat communication satellite. We've seen those before, um, and this is to provide communications to airplanes and ships and things like that. So basically, you know, you get the idea. Um, that's launching at 14.33 UTC, 
through 1633 UTC, so a two-hour launch window, and that is launching from Tanegashima, Japan, from the Yoshinobu Launch Complex. Uh, so that'll be an awesome launch, and check that one out. After that is Launcher 1 flying above the clouds. I feel like the Launcher 1 team has really taken a page out of the Rocket Lab notebook with their, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. their names. Um, and so this is uh, going to be a 500-kilometer uh, circular orbit with a 45 degree inclination. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a bunch of, uh, government, uh, R and D satellites, um, as well as two earth observation nano satellites, so probably CubeSats, uh, from, uh, Sat Revolution, which is a, a Polish, con- uh, a Polish company. Uh, that will be flying also on Wednesday, but we're going to bridge Midnight, uh, in UTC. So that, that is, uh, the 22nd from 2200 hours UTC to the 23rd at 0100 hours UTC. Um, and, uh, it's launcher one. So it's flying out of the Mojave Air and Space, the Air and Spaceport. And then after that on the 23rd is, um, the Angra A5 test flight. So this is a test flight. Um, it is the Third uh, test flight, it looks like, uh, for the Angra A5 with a Perseus or Percy, I guess it could be either one, which is an upper stage, which is derived from uh, the Block DM upper stage. Um, so there's no payload listed. So we don't know what that's going to be, but uh, needless to say, it's a test flight. So yeah, I guess that's as it, much it as we know. It sounds like it's like it might be a dummy payload. And like this. This launch time is based on the drop zone evacuation notices that have been issued. So, yeah, it's a, mm. it's a little, a little bit like, uh, um, the Chinese space agency is running this. Yeah. One. Yeah. And, uh, so the launch time we have right now, uh, is 1500 UTC and that's launching from the Plesiots Cosmodrome. So hopefully that's what time it's lifting off, but we'll see. So that's Thursday, two days before Christmas, Friday, the day before Christmas. Uh, as above, as previously mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, JWST is hopefully going to be flying uh, on the 24th uh, with a launch window from 1220 hours UTC to 1250 hours UTC. So that's uh, 730-ish uh, Eastern time. Um, yeah, like Godspeed. Yep. Uh, we, we hope we hope it works. Sure do. <laughs> this would be a, a very expensive launch failure. Oh, God, yeah, it would. It would be one of the worst, I think. All right, and then after that, um, on the 27th is a Soyuz launching OneWeb 12. So this is, you know, another OneWeb launch, and it is launching on a Soyuz 2.1B rocket with a frigate upper stage. And the OneWeb satellites, you know what those are. So this is for the low-latency broadband communications. Um, I don't know what batch this is. I guess the 12th. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's launching at 1310 UTC and launching from the the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. So the usual spot. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Time to do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Deathkin, uh, Chris, a.k.a. Stipe Garfield, Berkland, Colin, and chubby turkosi for joining us live in today's chat thank you so much guys and if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links please visit our website at the orbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies mission patches will be back in stock soon you can talk about the show with our listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you in two weeks on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.